I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode of Good Faith Weekly, Autumn and I are going to catch up, see how each other's families are doing during this pandemic. We're also going to take time to pause. This weekend on April the 19th marks the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. And since Autumn and I both live in Oklahoma and I'm a native Okie, this uh, weekend certainly means a lot to both of us. Stay tuned. We're also going to run an interview that we had with Imam Imad in Chauncey, who is the Imam at the Greater Oklahoma City Islamic Center and was here during the Oklahoma City bombing. And he talks a little bit about that in the interview, as well as his new book, Cloud Miles. So stay tuned for that interview. Autumn, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, yeah, we're just, you know, living the dream. I see that I you're still it. in the closet. So maybe one of these days the kids will let you out. I don't know that they will. I think I'm stuck in here for the duration. I have I have a window, though, so I really have all I need. And if should I need to iron any clothes, it's just right back there. Well, I will say, you know, for our listeners, because, I mean, talking about visual things on a podcast is so stimulating. But uh, Autumn is sitting in her closet, but her laundry is perfectly folded. It's on hangers. It looks immaculate. So I know that you do a little tidying up while you're in there doing some work. (laughs) You know, my husband is 100% laundry duty. So he handles all of that. That's sort of his jurisdiction. And uh, yeah, he does keep it really organized. We utilize a family closet. So we have three kids and my husband and my clothes in this room. So it has to be organized or it would just be chaos. Well, good. Well, I'm glad that you look great. You sound great. Uh, I'm glad that your family's doing well. We're doing well over here. Uh, Still uh, taking an afternoon uh, catch with my youngest son. He and I, he's taking classes uh, online. And uh, of course, I'm working all day. So about three o'clock every day, we go out in the front yard and and play catch. So that's Well, that's new. That's that's new. To your gym routine you described to us on the last episode. Right. Yeah, that, that is new. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. We're, we're enjoying that and watching movies and getting caught up on Schitt's Creek. For our listeners who haven't seen Schitt's Creek, it is a... Uh, Mitch, uh, am I going to have to radio edit you? I don't think so because it's not, it's spelled differently. Uh, okay. You're thinking of. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, it is smart comedy. If you like smart comedy, uh, Daniel Levy is the writer and director, producer, of it. Slash uh, dreamboat. <laughs> exactly. It is a fascinating, wonderful, wonderful show. So we highly recommend it. So we're about finished with that. Well, um, my husband and I are pretty behind in our TV because we have four kids and 17,000 jobs. And so uh, we are just now watching The Crown. Which oh is- my gosh. Is it not awesome? It's so good. And it's really interesting because you and I are both reading Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile. And so it's so interesting to see John Lithgow as Churchill kind of portraying what's happening at the end of where The Splendid and Vile is happening at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of like those two worlds are coming together. And it's been really, it's kind of cool to to do those in parallel. I know. And when you see the Queen, as you did this week, uh, making, you know, her speech to the UK, uh, calming the fears during covid uh, it just puts a whole different light on seeing her these days. Because, I mean, just think about it. She worked with Churchill. That's just hard to believe. Yeah. 
it's it's really crazy and I'm really excited for um, I'm enjoying it right now but Olivia Coleman is one of my favorite actors mm-hmm. and so I can't wait for I think season three is when she comes yeah. as queen yeah we're caught up and she she is fantastic at it so yeah you're really gonna enjoy it well uh, let's shift gears a little bit okay this weekend marks a very somber occasion here in Oklahoma mm-hmm. and uh, I know You've lived here for several years now, you and your family. Uh, I'm a native Okie. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I spent some time down in the Lone Star State going to seminary and pastoring churches down there. Uh, But on Sunday, April the 19th, this weekend, it marks the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. The Alfred P. Murrow building was bombed that morning at 9.02. And it really changed not only the changed the state in an immense way, but it really changed our country in an immense way because it was the first time we saw in a mass media world what domestic terrorism looked like. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, a somber and horrible event to experience. But at the same time, we saw some wonderful things emerge from those ashes, Uh, people coming together, uh, trying to understand one another in a more deep uh, way. And uh, and it was it was something to to encounter. So where were you uh, 25 years ago? You don't want to hear this, Mitch. Uh, were you Were you in your cradle? <laughs> <laughs> I was um, an eighth grader, so I was thirteen. <laughs> and um, I remember, um, I think it was lunchtime. We had we watched the news in one of my like social studies classes, like as a general like part of the day. And the news was about the bombing, and we were seeing, you know, some of those poignant pictures that we've all come to kind of associate with the bombing of firefighters coming out because you know I think the part that really gripped me as a 13 year old and, and now as a mom was the the child care center that was there yeah uh, 19 children uh, 168 people perished uh, total uh, and 19 children uh, from that daycare center you were talking about uh, yeah. And then, you know, when we moved to Oklahoma, um, as a Texan, I had to learn a lot about Oklahoma. And so, um, since we were going to be living, you know, what, what is it? 13 miles from the bombing, uh, site, we went and visited the memorial and, um, just the impact of the, at the memorial, they have sort of these artistic renderings of chairs to represent the people who were lost and the children who were lost, the chairs are smaller. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, it'll just make your heart sink really to go and visit. But something that, that you mentioned and that, that I've noticed about the people of Oklahoma is um, there is sort of this perfect blend of kind of a Southern hospitality, but also a Midwest togetherness sort of mentality. And I think it's um, for all of us who've watched Ken Burns Dust Bowl documentary, who've learned a lot about um, Oklahoma history, you understand, and you know, with the weather patterns, the way they are, it's a state that endures a lot. And about the Oklahoma standard, uh, it seems to be a little bit different than the rest of the world because of our how our state originated uh, as a territory uh, yeah. with civilized tribes coming over on the Trail of Tears, uh, combined with the ruggedness of the frontier uh, movement, um, 
it is, it's just a little bit different. Everybody in this state has a history of struggle, of overcoming, of diff overcoming difficulties. Uh, and that has played a part at our state. Yeah, so and it sounds like you guys saw that during the bombing. Um, we've experienced it as tornadoes have come through and you know, decimated communities um, and different things like that. It seems like the people of Oklahoma, and even those of us who you know got here as quick as, as we could, as they say, um, mm -hmm. sort of align with that community spirit. And so, I don't know, I'm just, I'm encouraged by it. I know it's something that's really somber and certainly we grieve with those who lost loved ones and who were, you know, who grew up in a state of fear because of, of what that bombing produced. And I talked to friends who were also in middle school in Moore, Oklahoma on that day and they thought a bomb had gone off at Tinker Air Force Base when it happened. Yeah, speaking of, uh, I was actually not here in Oklahoma 25 years ago. I was down in Fort Worth, Texas attending seminary. And I'll never forget it because I was walking into class uh, that day and I just remember uh, the students who were sitting there had the television set on and on the television, the breaking news uh, from CNN said that an explosion had occurred in downtown Oklahoma city. And all you could really see was the devastation of the building and uh, smoke billowing across the skyline. No one knew that it was a domestic terrorist uh, uh, act at that time. And so I thought it strange. And uh, being in Fort Worth, being a native of Oki, my parents still lived in Tulsa. So I thought, well, maybe the local news is reporting on uh, more so than the national news. So I called my dad, uh, who again lives in Tulsa, which is about 120 miles northeast of Oklahoma City. And I called him at work. And when his uh, receptionist answered the phone, I identified myself and said, I'm Mitch Randall. I'm Rod's uh, son. And the first thing out of her mouth was this, Mitch, your dad is okay. And I paused because I didn't know what she was talking about. And I said, what do you mean? She said, he was in Oklahoma City this morning. And I said, really? I had no idea. And she said, yes, we've been in contact with him and our other employees uh, who are at the Capitol. Um, he will uh, be calling you back soon, but just know he's safe. I said, well, thank you. So this was in the days before cell phones. So I had to wait for him to travel back to Tulsa uh, before he called me once he got back into the office and he told me what had gone on. Uh, my dad is uh, in the insurance business and he was at the Capitol at uh, claims court uh, right next to the Capitol. And he, was, he and his colleague gotten out of the car and they were standing in the parking lot at 9.02 that morning when all of a sudden they heard this incredible explosion coming from the downtown area. And my dad said you could just feel the, uh, the, the vibrations from the blasts. Uh, and uh, the Capitol's probably about a mile, two miles from downtown. Um, he said it was just enormous and it, it sounded like a building had uh, it been imploded, but you know, here we are during a weekday uh, work day that seemed odd. Mm -hmm. He said it, it was just eerie because it was just deadly silent after the blast. And so uh, they kind of stood around to think that they thought, well, certainly they'd start hearing sirens and stuff like that. If, if something had gone haywire, uh, it was just a, the silence. He said it was just so heavy. It was just so strange. You could hear birds chirping as you often do here in Oklahoma, but it was just quiet. And so they went into uh, the courthouse there at the Capitol and it took about 
10 minutes, he said, before everybody's cell phones and beepers, this was in the days of beepers, just started uh, erupting because all of these law firms, uh, all of these offices were looking for their lawyers, looking for their employees, because many of them would have appointments down at the Murr building, mm -hmm. uh, close to the blast. And so it began to, to break that uh, this was indeed not a natural gas disaster, as many people thought initially. Uh, it was a bomb that went off. And it was, it was a frightening day. Uh, I stayed glued to the television uh, all, all day. We began to see images uh, that will always be burned into our memories, especially the first responders pulling uh, the bodies, especially the bodies of little children from that blast. There's that famous photo that was taken of the uh, fire, uh, the firemen uh, lifting the, the little toddler out of the blast uh, who had been killed. And it was just a devastating day. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there was so much that went on that day and so much that has gone on since then uh, that it's really been a life transform or a life transforming moment, not only for us as a people, but uh, for me personally as well. Yeah, it was, it's heavy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is heavy. And, you know, I can remember uh, the first few hours people trying to figure out after it was determined that it was not a natural gas uh, disaster, but indeed a, a bomb that was detonated, uh, people immediately began to speculate that this was the work of uh, a foreign agency, more specifically uh, the work of radical Islamic terrorism. Hmm. And as you will hear on this interview that we are going to play here in just a moment, uh, my good friend, uh, which this is something else that came out of the Oklahoma City disaster, uh, my relationship with uh, the Islamic community, and more specifically, my good friend Imad and Chauncey, uh, who is the uh, Imam here at the Greater Oklahoma City or the Greater Islamic Society or Greater Islamic Society of Oklahoma City, um, that he's got a story that that occurred that day. Uh, that is just really mesmerizing. And so you'll want to listen to his interview later on in the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but as that news began to break, it was about an hour later, uh, north of Oklahoma City, that the Oklahoma State troopers pulled over an individual and, uh, and suspected that he had something to do with the bombing. And so when they Timothy Bay out jail cell, people were a little bit aghast because here you had this clean cut ex veteran uh, individual who was who the community was being told was responsible for this bombing, and it was like really this was something that uh, I think America was not ready to see, but something that had been they're still uh, not ready. We're still not ready. You're absolutely right. Yeah. In fact, you know, in the deeper dive here in a little bit, we're going to talk about the lessons that I learned from Oklahoma City, and that's one of them, is the uh, tenacity and determination of white Christian nationalism and the dangers associated with it. So it was just a really heavy day, and as we commemorate this 25th anniversary, I want to just take time, take a moment uh, to pause here during the pod, remember those 168 people who lost their life 25 years ago, 
the numerous people who were injured, the first responders who were there doing incredible work, and the trauma that that day left behind. But also, we want to remember that in this state, uh, in this country, we are a people who can overcome absolutely anything if we come together. So before we get into the deep dive bottom, let's just take a moment to reflect and remember on these 168 people. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And in today's deeper dive, we're going to continue our conversation about the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. On Thursday of this week, I released an article at ethicsdaily.com discussing the lessons that I have learned after the bombing. We have 25 years in our rearview mirror now, and it's really been astounding to me how much I have grown over these 25 years, how many opportunities have arisen for me uh, and that I've had to seek out to really try to come to grips with what kind of society that we live in, what kind of society I am hoping for, especially a society that my kids and grandkids can grow up one of these days. And so uh, I just shared that with the, with the readers at ethicsdaily.com. And so Autumn, uh, talk about the first lesson uh, that I learned during this. And I mentioned a moment ago in our, in our previous segment that evil can emerge and wreak havoc anywhere. Mm-hmm. There was a time where I thought Oklahoma was safe that I grew up in a, a state where, you know, we rode bikes, we stayed out till dark, a little after dark. My mom and dad would even let us go and play hide and seek uh, after dinner in the dark during the summer. Um, you heard of crime, you heard of, uh, uh, you know, hate-filled crime every now and again, but it wasn't anything near what we experienced in Oklahoma City. And being in the heartland, in the middle of the Bible Belt, I think we got um, we got jaded to the fact that we were untouchable uh, because we were a good people, working hard, doing the best we could, and and that uh, evil was uh, something that happened in other places. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, evil can emerge anywhere. And that was one of the first lessons that I learned from Oklahoma City. You're absolutely right that evil lingers, sort of. And it I feel like it sort of relies on our complacency that we get lulled into this sense that it can't happen here. And it sort of harkens back to something that we've talked about before, and that we're always looking for the evil in the other and not mm-hmm. ever looking from within. And which is why when this happened, there was an immediate response, you know, this must be Islamic terrorism. This must be some kind of a radical external group. Um, this is an us versus them rather than an us versus us situation. Right. And that's exactly right. And it actually leads into the second lesson that I learned uh, that wasn't initially uh, reported on, uh, but since then has become not only connected to the Oklahoma City bombing, but has also been felt uh, as, as, as late as today. Um, And that is the rise of white Christian nationalism in this country. Uh, Early on after the Oklahoma City bombing, there wasn't a lot of reporting on Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols' association with 
white Christian nationalism. Uh, it was dedicated more to their anti-government stance. The, uh, the purpose for the bombing that they gave was in reaction to uh, the actions of the federal government had enacted at Ruby Ridge as well as Waco at the Branch Davidian compound. And so it commemorates those two days uh, as far as Nichols and McVeigh thought. But they also had a connection to white Christian nationalism. And uh, they championed uh, things such as a race war. Uh, they felt like that because of who they were, because of their race, because of their religion, they were somehow favored in the eyes of God and that everybody else should somehow uh, bow to their greatness because God has set them apart uh, to rule over the world and to rule over others. And anything that somehow hints at justice or equality infringes upon their rights, uh, which is totally erroneous. It's totally a, a false allegation. Uh, but McVeigh and, and Nichols believe this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And from Oklahoma City, uh, now in today's uh, culture, especially uh, with uh, under the Trump presidency, uh, again, I do not pretend to 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 call out the president as a racist. But what I can say with without hesitancy is that uh, racist white Christian nationalists uh, in this country applaud his policies and support him every chance they get. And we have seen that uh, in the Charlottesville uh, rally that took place uh, during the first year of his presidency. It seems as though white Christian nationalism has been emboldened mm -hmm. under this administration and has come out of the shadows. Uh, and we see hate crimes up, especially anti-Semitism and crimes on the African-American and particularly the uh, Hispanic communities. Uh, with the issues surrounding immigration, and even more recently, uh, under COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we've seen hate crimes emerge against Asian Americans because of the president's rhetoric calling uh, coronavirus the Chinese virus, which is just blatantly a racist statement uh, and a, a dog whistle to those that support him. And so, uh, this this is alive and well and still alive and well in America. It is, and it wears a lot of masks. You know, I, I don't know that a lot of people would raise a flag of, I am a proud white Christian nationalist, but it's in subtle ways uh, that it has infiltrated our churches and our schools and just communication in general. Right. And, you know, another thing that we do need to be careful about, which I'm reminded often from uh, my colleagues uh, who happen to be African-American, Hispanic, Asian, uh, but particularly from the African-American community, that what we're seeing now has always been there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have African-American colleagues, you know, remind me that, you know, this country was built on slave labor. Uh, yeah. This country endured Jim Crow in the South. So they have seen this blatant racism up close. They've seen systemic racism and experienced systemic racism on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. They've seen blatant racism as their sons and daughters are arrested for, uh, 
uh, you know, on charges that a white uh, individual would never be arrested for. Uh, so, you know, at, at times I think as a white community, we, we've got to be careful in saying this is something new. Uh, it does feel uh, like it is more prevalent and more popular today, mm-hmm. uh, but it's always been there. And, we, right. and, and, and it's a continuation of, of what is known as white supremacy mm-hmm. and, and white privilege uh, that a lot of people want to deny. But it is a fact uh, that uh, it, it persists and it continues to, to exist here in our country. Well, the third lesson that I learned from this is, is a little more positive and more constructive, uh, even though the, the first two are important. The third one is that I discovered that Muslims are just like me. <laughs> he even tells corny jokes like you, Mitch, when we talk to him on later. <laughs> exactly right. You know, you know, after Oklahoma City, and more particularly after 9-11, I did not have very many Muslim friends, um, mainly because of growing up in Oklahoma, but right. I, I knew about them. Uh, but I never had taken any initiative to go talk to them, to visit with them. Uh, but after the backlash of Oklahoma City or the immediate backlash of Oklahoma City and then the blatant backlash uh, after 9-11, uh, I felt compelled to begin uh, searching uh, for uh, Muslim uh, colleagues and individuals that I could talk to, that I could begin having a relationship with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it began with me uh, when I moved here to Oklahoma, especially I had some uh, colleagues down in Texas, but especially when I moved to Oklahoma and began hanging around uh, individuals at the Turkish rain uh, drop house uh, in Oklahoma City, Orhan Osman, who was director at the time, mm-hmm. he and I began a relationship, and he began teaching me about uh, Islam and that Islam is at its core a peaceful religion. It's been perverted uh, by certain individuals, just like Christianity. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, and then he introduced me to uh, the Imam, Imad and Chansi, and Imad and I are now very close friends. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling to his home city of Beirut, Lebanon, and we've got a, a short documentary about his life that we produced at ethicsdaily.com. But what I discovered is, you know what? Ahmad's just like me. He worries about his kids. He worries about the bills. Uh, he gets angry at his uh, beat-up car, just like I do. Uh, <laughs> and so he and I have this deep connection as human beings, and as, as he fondly suggests, we are brothers from another mother. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the fourth lesson that I learned uh, after this tragedy is that there remains a need for good people to practice good faith so that we can unite behind a goal of creating a diverse, just, and peaceful community. The only thing that stands in the way of creating a better society and a better tomorrow is when good people remain silent and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need people of good faith and that is of any faith. Uh, Christian, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, whatever faith you practice, 
to come into solidarity with one another, to create a better society, a peaceful society, a just society, so that we can never see again what happened at Oklahoma City in 1995, in New York City on 9-11, and other tragedies that we've seen arise across this country. There's no place for that in a just, peaceful society. And when people of faith remain silent, when people of faith do nothing and stay disengaged, that's when evil finds an opportunity to fester and to act upon that evil. And I'm for one said, I've had enough. And I hope people will join me in this effort uh, to bring about, to bring about a more just and peaceful society. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, part of the reason that we're here as good faith media is to be that voice, to be that, um, those people saying, not only is there more to tell, but you have a voice and you need to help us tell it. And so I hope that our uh, listeners will make sure to plug into all of our social media and follow us and subscribe to our podcast so that you can keep up to date on these relevant issues and hear that there is a dissenting voice in this hatred. Absolutely right. Coming up next is our interview with Imam Imad Inchansi, and you will not want to miss uh, that interview because he talks about what it was like to be in Oklahoma City the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, and then also goes into more detail about his most recent book that's just been released by Nurturing Faith Publishing called Cloud Miles. Are you looking for a new way to grow your faith? Nurturing Faith is offering five of their best-selling devotionals for only $12 for Good Faith weekly listeners. Go to nurturingfaith.net to find hope from Carol Bozeman Taylor, John R. Roebuck, Blake McKinney, Michael L. Ruffin, and Merrill J. Davies. The books are all available in the bookstore section of the Nurturing Faith website. And now, back to Mitch and Autumn. This week's guest is Imam Imad Inchansi. Inchansi is the Imam here in Oklahoma City, but more importantly, he is a good friend of not only myself, but a lot of Christians around the state of Oklahoma. Imad, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, you have just published a brand new book called Cloud Miles. Congratulations on the publication. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about the book and the story in the book, um, um, the story of my life, basically, as an American Muslim, uh, for um, a wider audience to understand what a Muslim goes through every single day. Well, I mean, just thumbing through the pages of Cloud Miles, it is a very intriguing story. And uh, for our audience that uh, does not know you well, uh, you grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, as a Palestinian refugee. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yes. So uh, my father lived in a place called Palestine, Jaffa, Palestine, in 1948, um, of course, um, he was refugeed from a place called Palestine, and eventually that place is called Israel now. Um, um, went uh, from his uh, hometown, uh, being uh, having an extreme access to things and um, a privileged life to a refugee in Lebanon. Um, his life was reduced to selling produce on the streets, 
of our refugee camp in Sabra and Shatila. Um, and of course, uh, my mother uh, was coming as a temporary refugee from Syria to Lebanon, and the two refugees met each other, and um, the rest is my life. I was born in Lebanon from a Syrian mother, Palestinian father, and um, um, I grew up in um, and around the Palestinian camps in Sabra and Shatila. Um, I grew up in uh, Christian welfare schools, and um, yeah, tell us a little um, bit about the Christian. Age, uh, t- uh, tell us a little bit about that Christian welfare school. I mean, I know that that plays a big part in your life. Well, it's a huge part of my life. That's uh, that's um, a uh, a school was uh, being run by uh, uh, the uh, churches, uh, United Churches of the Middle East. Uh, it's a charity that was funded mainly by the, Middle, the, the Council of Middle Eastern Churches. And, um, you know, we were fed there. We were taken care of there. Um, uh, we were, um, uh, you know, that's not my favorite part, but we had our vaccination there as well. <laughs> um, so, 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 so um, you know, I, I have a very fond memory uh, of that place um, uh, where I, I've met many of my friends and, of course, I met uh, Ms. Rahma. Ms. Rahma was uh, a Christian nun who actually dedicated her life uh, to helping uh, those people who are underprivileged and uh, orphanage and orphaned. So, um, you know, Ms. Rahma had this really beautiful personality that made everybody feel special. Um, Ms. Rahma always sat me in her lap. Uh, Ms. Rahma always had this, um, uh, made you feel as if you're the only person in this entire class. Although, um, as you probably would imagine, those classes were, you know, overcrowded with kids. Uh, but growing up in a, in a war tour area, you know, sometimes we'll come to class uh, with some uh, of our colleagues not there. And uh, Ms. Rahma always had these comforting words for us. Um, she um, always rewarded us, always made us feel good. She always brought me in the front of the class. And, you know, my mom was really um, a, a clean lady, you know, compared um, to, to everything that was going around us. So we were the example right. of how a neat person should look like. Sure, sure. Uh, without knocking anybody down, uh, she, she always rewarded us with sugar candy. I still, <laughs> I still That's taste bad. that candy. Well, I know Miss, I know Miss Mercy was extremely influential in your life and, uh, just uh, exhibited what hopefully is the best of the Christian faith, but that wasn't your only encounter with Christians there in Lebanon. Um, you survived a terrible, terrible massacre. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that day? Yes, uh, fast forward uh, to 1983 when I was only 17 years old uh, with the uh, background of uh, Ms. Rahma um, and, and, you know, a woman that my own mother was jealous of uh, that I spoke of so highly all the time. Um, 1983, um, Sabra and Shatila massacre took place for uh, three days, three consecutive days. I was in the refugee camp at that time as the uh, Israeli army actually invaded Lebanon and surrounded our refugee camp. Um, in that very moment, 
um, they turned the Israeli army turned a blind eye to a very extreme Christian group uh, known as the Christian phalangists, um, or as we know them as uh, the Lebanese phalangists, um, an extreme group. Um, I'm using this between two quotes, a Maronite group of Lebanon who went inside my refugee camp and uh, butchered 1,800 people of my friends and family. Mm. Mm. Um, I was at that time an, a, a, a white helmet volunteer, basically a person that trying to do something as far as, you know, I don't want to call myself an ambulance or an emergency responder or the first responder, but that's what I was with very little training. Uh, we had, we had a little, um, one of those folks back in, um, uh, vans and we were the people who would take care of the injured. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, um, it was really, I'm sorry. I always shake when I speak about this incident. Oh, I can imagine. I can uh, imagine. Yeah. The, 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 um, the person who was with me in the, in the ambulance was shot by a sniper mm. and I, and I ran um, as much as I can and hit for a few days and, and came out uh, uh, to the cries of the people mm. as I could hear in my um, hazed moments or few days as I realized afterwards, I could hear Jesus and Mary's name being invoked, which was really odd for me because the only Jesus and Mary's name that was invoked um, in my childhood is the Jesus and Mary that fed me, clothed me, uh, took care of me. After this experience, this, this horrible, horrible event in your life, and you said you heard the name of, of Jesus and Mary being uh, used, and it was hard for you to reconcile uh, your experience uh, with Miss Mercy at the school when you were growing up versus this this evil expression of Christianity that you faced in this massacre. So how in the world did you overcome that? Well, um, you know, this is probably, you probably have never heard this before, but uh, repelling hate with love. Mm. Um, the love that I was shown as as a young boy uh, the sugar candy that I still taste to this day, uh, the compassion that I have seen uh, from Miss Mercy, Miss Rahma, um, um, you know, um, um, overtaken my entire my entire being. So even when I heard Jesus and Mary's name being invoked, and um, uh, as people actually butchered eighteen hundred people in Jesus' name, in Mary's name, the only Jesus and Mary I knew was the one who took care of me, clothed me, and 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 um, uh, and, and gave me sugar candy. Um, also, at the same time, um, you know, the perpetrator who came inside my refugee camp, they dipped brushes in the in their victims' blood and put crosses with the victims' blood on my re on my mm. refugee camp walls. But at the same time, I wanted people to know that the people who wept for me and the people who rescued me and rescued many of the other people there were the Red Cross the Red Cross of Lebanon. So um, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the idea of uh, love wins at the end or this concept that, uh, you know, uh, you cannot fight yeah, hate sure. with hate, but only love could overcome 
uh, hate, I'm a living example of that, of that, of that strategy. Well, Ahmad, I just can't tell you how uh, honored we are to have you with us today. Um, now, we want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, in the book, uh, you talk about coming to the United States, and uh, there is a poignant moment that occurs here in Oklahoma uh, when you are the local imam here in Oklahoma City, and I think Autumn has a question about uh, the, uh, the bombing of the Murrow Building here in Oklahoma City. Yeah, I was just going to ask what it was like in your shoes that day. It sounds like you had a pretty interesting time. I know it's one of those moments in Oklahoma history that if you ask folks where they were, they can remember. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about what, that may, what that time was like for you? Well, absolutely. I was, um, you know, advanced. I was going to school. Um, 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 and at the same time, I was working at a local cafeteria, first cafeteria, probably some of the listeners know the name, um, at French Market Mall in Oklahoma City, which was uh, quite a while or quite a bit far from, from downtown Oklahoma City, as I was going to the bank to make a deposit, I could hear that, um, you know, that explosion. Um, the, the, the explosion sounded so familiar. Um, unfortunately, as, as, as a young kid, I'm used to hearing these sound of explosions. Um, every other building in Lebanon looked like the Murrah building at one time. And I grew up in that, in that atmosphere. Um, Oklahoma City bombing, uh, as the 25th anniversary approaches us uh, here pretty soon, um, holds a very, very um, um, confusing part in our heart, in my own heart. Um, the simple fact that tens of people have died, including children, was, was absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking uh, to me as an, as an individual, as somebody who lived in Oklahoma, somebody ran away from war, as somebody who does not want to see any of these images anymore. But at the same time, the first few hours of Oklahoma City bombing defined another moment for me in my life as the news start talking about John Doe number one and John Doe number two being two Middle Eastern guys. Um, I know this story is, is, is way undertold, yeah, and as a matter of fact, um, to this day, um, I still am puzzled with a lot of the details of the Oklahoma City bombing. However, to make a long story short, there was a, a young man who worked for uh, the same company as I worked for, and um, he was uh, leaving to the airport uh, from his house, and um, right after the explosion, and. Um, uh, the neighbors saw two Middle Eastern looking guys leaving uh, his house to the airport and um, she basically dialed the, 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 uh, the number for the FBI and the rest was all over the news. So all of a sudden, all the focus is and all the, you know what I call them, uh, uh, Middle Eastern experts are on TV saying this explosion have, um, you know, Islamic terrorism all over it. And before you know it, me, myself, my family, um, um, my friend's family, the one, the one who was um, um, wrongly accused, the entire Muslim community was under siege hmm. for almost a day and a half. I, can't, I just can't imagine. Uh, my, 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 um, our entire um, 
um, you know, this is, this is something you probably see throughout the book, is the simple fact every time there is something perpetrated, a, a, an explosion or, or an attack or, or, you know, every time something like this happens, we as Muslims get robbed from the normal feeling of feeling sad and feeling, um, you know, um, uh, sympathy to the, to the victims and their families because we're scared. Mm. Um, so the Oklahoma City bombing was a, a time that was extremely scary for the Muslim community. One of our members was uh, traveling and he was brought back by the FBI, the news media, um, uh, start talking about Muslim extremism in Oklahoma, um, and, and the news media concentrated on our group uh, because at that very moment, very time, the Muslim community have uh, split into um, uh, uh, split into two groups, and that person happened to be from our group. And before you know it, uh, the media would say that he had bombed making material in his in his luggage. Uh, that they confiscated from him. So, and, so um, you know, all Ahmad, he had, by the way. Ahmad, after, after it was discovered that Timothy McVeigh and uh, Nichols uh, had orchestrated this terrible uh, evil in Oklahoma City, what was the response after it came out that Muslims did not have anything to do with the bombing? What... Were, th were there Christians that came to stand by your side? Did they still call it terrorism? There you go. Did right? They? No. Oh, uh, early. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's, that's the way it happens, you know, sometimes. And it's still happening to this day. So after Timothy McVeigh was, um, you know, by the way, I have my theory about Timothy McVeigh because, you know, the news would tell you that Timothy McVeigh was caught uh, because he had a, a, an expired, um, you know, uh, tag on his car. Um, my theory is they knew right along that this has a anti-government group uh, prints all over it, uh, simply because it was the second anniversary of Waco, and right. uh, and 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 then and and the uh, you know the FBI headquarters or the people who actually have uh, orchestrated that that attack on Waco was from here from Oklahoma City, but. Um, I'm, I, I don't have nothing to back that up except sure. the simple fact that it was just a convenient that they caught Timothy McVeigh. Right. But the aftermath um, of that is, is, is an extreme silence. Um, during, during that, the interfaith community, we would see people from churches um, and synagogue would come to the mosque. And, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, I mentioned the story of coming to the mosque one day and, and what I thought looked like a bomb in front of our mosque, but what it was, um, it was a bouquet of flowers um, with the reflection um, of the aluminum um, uh, wrapping around the flowers and with the reflection of the moon on it, uh, left by uh, local um, uh, interfaith organizations uh, telling us that they're, you know, we're Americans like you, that we are Americans just like them, and offering uh, you know, because for a couple of days, you have no idea how the power of the media was that I even suspected my own friends to mm, the point that wow. I went to the FBI and say, are you looking for me? Am I John Doe number two? Mm -hmm. And of course, they, they said, they turned me away and said, no, no, you're not. We'll, we'll let you know uh, if we need something from you. 
Um, uh, however, the, the simple fact that I suspected my own friend that I knew for a long time and his wife and my wife are good, good friends um, just tells you the power of the media sometimes and how it affects the life of the, uh, the, life of the people. Timothy McVeigh was, was caught. Uh, interfaith community, including the Interfaith Alliance, was a product of Oklahoma City bombing. And Oklahoma City, uh, since 1995, had a head start on interfaith work uh, than the entire nation. Well, Ahmad, I, for one, just want to say thank you uh, for all the work you do here in the state of Oklahoma, but also across the country to uh, bring people of faith together, people of goodwill together, and to practice a good faith. And uh, we are just very, very thankful for your time with us today. Uh, again, everyone, uh, the book is Cloud Miles, and you can purchase it today at uh, whatever bookstore uh, you would like to, to place that order. We encourage you to do that right now after you listen to this podcast. Ahmad, thank you so much for all you do. I count it a privilege to call you a colleague, but more importantly, I Thank you so much for having me. And just a quick note, Ms. Rahma, Ms. Mercy have a, a great effect on me that all the social organizations I've been involved in bear the name of that Christian, not in Oklahoma City. Well, there you go. There is indeed more to tell. Thank you, Ahmad. Thank you. Thanks.